Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Greetings, comrades, near and far. This is Steve from the Baked and Awake podcast, and I have been absolutely enthralled with the Eastern Border's perspective, humor, and most of all, the depth of its host's understanding of not only the history of the USSR, but of the wider context of its relationships with and impact upon the rest of the world. I also particularly enjoy learning about the Cold War era from a person who was on the opposite side of the pressure cooker of dread that was the reality for most Americans and Europeans during the decades between the end of the Second World War and the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991. I find myself listening to one episode after another, and I can't seem to get enough history of the great motherland is told by my new best friend, Christophs. When you, as I soon will, finally run out of episodes of the Eastern Border to binge on and are forced to wait patiently for your next dose of our Latvian sage, I humbly suggest that you pay us a visit and lend your ear to my show, Baked and Awake. If you do, you will find me and my cohorts enjoying and educating about legal cannabis use while discussing topics ranging from enduring mysteries and hidden histories to outlandish conspiracies and everything in between. You know, the usual sort of thing potheads get up to after injecting a bit of the devil's lettuce. Again, we're Baked and Awake, and you can find us on iTunes and everywhere great podcasts are shared. Before I go, a question for our gracious host. Christops, can you tell us if it's true? We heard somewhere that in Soviet Russia, joint rolls you. Greetings, comrades, and welcome to Eastern Border. This time, we're back to our Stalin episodes, and, uh, boy, we have a special one for you this time, because uh, I think I think the series could also be called Stalin Escaping from Prison All the Time. Anyhow, I want to start this with a quote, which Stalin wrote about um, himself, sort of. He wrote, Out of filth, you can make a prince. And this is, this is what is going to happen slowly. As more and more we shall see Stalin moving on to very responsible uh, posts in the party and taking even more active roles in its workings, getting some recognition here. But last time when we recorded about Stalin, we ended up with uh, Stalin just getting arrested once again. 
and being put into prison. Well, let's continue from there. What happens first is that in May 1910, party comrades managed to move Stalin to the prison hospital, where he will be for three out of his six total months of imprisonment. Yelizaveta Damovitra Esayan remembers, quote, We tried to do everything to move comrade Stalin to the prison hospital, where he could live in comparatively better circumstances than in a regular cell. To achieve this, we did some trickery. In the prison hospital at that time, there was one Goryachev who had third-faced tuberculosis. We took his mm, liquids and gave them to the doctor Nesterov for analysis in the hospital. And for a certain amount of money, we got a paper saying that these things belonged to Stalin, so he managed to be transferred under this fake illness. And uh, one other thing happens while he is in prison. <clears throat> in the 29th of June... Stalin apparently files a marriage request to one Stefania Petrovska, who uh, at the time was living in Baku, the same place where he was, um, well, I would normally say serving his term, but this is Stalin we're talking about. Uh, anyhow, this request to the Baku prison authorities is denied. He would later get an official permission, but Stalin would be far away by then. For starters, on the 27th of August, the local governor signs an order prohibiting Stalin to live and enter in Caucasus region for five years. And so, he's sent to another exile on the 23rd of September. This time, he's back to Solvichegodsk in the Arkhangelsk Oblast, where he was sent back in this first time. As you might remember, these Tsarist exiles are very tame in comparison, so from November 1910 to June 1911, Stalin will manage to have a large, in-depth correspondence with Lenin, and, well, guess what? Organize meetings and lead the local party cell of the Social Democrats of Soyvichegotsk. One letter that kind of shows Stalin's attitude by now was written in the 31st of December of 1910. Here's a fragment of this. It is addressed to the Central Committee of the Party. I have six months left here. After I've sat this one out, I'll be ready for your requests. If the need for party workers and organizing is really dire, then I can't escape and run off at any moment, really, but I like it here, and the company is competent and great, and it would be really, really good if we could arrange some illegal socialist periodicals to be sent to us. And then addresses for mail orders follow. In other letters... This uh, nonchalant spirit is also felt, and it is understood that Stalin, well basically just wants to sit through his term, because, quote, legally I can act with a wider scope, end quote. But yeah, he's sitting there as a means of vacation, basically. Not because he just couldn't literally walk out of it. No, he, he can just leave. Now, that doesn't mean he's spending all his time there, and, you know, he's being honest about it. For one, between the 25th of January and 20th of February, Stalin, as he was technically still suffering from his uh, fake tuberculosis, is using this uh, <clears throat> illness to go and get treatment in Volgoda. But of course, there he has some contacts, a certain Bolshevik Zammer, whose wife is working in the hospital, and so he gets a fake documentation about how he's <clears throat> totally stayed at Volgoda Hospital the whole time, while he just goes and visits Petersburg for this treatment period. While he's chilling out in his Siberian vacation, Stalin also gets married. This happens on the 20th of February in the home of one Kuzakova, where he's supposed to live out his exile sentence. He marries another political exile, Serafima Ivanovna Horoshenko, although she's sent off to Nikolsk just three days later to serve her term there. One thing that messed up my research and that messes up Stalin's mood while there is that Tsarist authorities have become smarter, and he's disturbed by frequent surprise raids by the cops, especially after his marriage. But apparently all they find out are his letters to Serafima. But here, some of you smarter folks who've read some books about this will say, wait, wait a minute, we know that Stalin's second wife was Nadia Alulieva, so, uh, who exactly is this Serafima lady? And, well, uh, for starters, technically they were in the civil union, as their exile marriage wasn't documented or approved by any authorities whatsoever. They just, you know, got married in this building where they lived in front of, like, the witnesses, which were, like, the peasants living there. So she sort of doesn't count. And secondly, well, um, we have no idea what happens to her later on. And yes, I did look this one up. It took a lot of time for me because... Really, she just disappears. All we have are those few letters, 
And and when you try to put some real effort in searching this, she appears in various Stalin biographies. Because yes, this did happen, but she just vanishes from history. And that is um, a bit scary because Stalin was also later on in his life when he edited his own histories. But he opened about the people he killed. And he was also open about his first wife, which died tragically, which he truly loved. But this, this Serafima just vanishes into thin air. I don't know. I should, I should probably poke my supernatural podcasting friends to do a show about that. But I doubt they'll find anything more than I did, though. On this note, uh, Stalin obviously continues his political work and organizes his exile party structure. He organizes a conference of exiled social democrats, which takes place on the 25th of May, 1911. From the agency report of the Volgoda secret police agent, called Patsevich at the time, quote, After they had organized their party group from the exiles, they started official meetings, sometimes even with visitors, from other exile Siberian places of detainment. One of these large meetings with many people from other places participating happened on the 25th of May. There, various speeches were said, reports were read, and questions about the current political events were being discussed, especially concerning the work of Gosduma. The main goal was to turn exiles into experienced propagandists, so that they could spread their ideas among the locals living in their places of exile. End quote. Because of this active work, he, on the 1st of June, in the meeting of the Central Committee of the Russian Social Democratic Party in Paris, in absentia, will be voted in the Organizational Committee, which is a high-ranking post, really. Meanwhile, Stalin, on the end of that month, shall have to spend three days in the box, detained by the police, because they have really gotten tired of his uh, activities, even though he's still technically exiled. But that doesn't bother him much, as he has served this current term, and it ends on the 27th of June. So, he just picks up all his stuff, and leaves, to Volgoda city, as he's forbidden to live in Caucasus, and in the regional capitals, and any industrial centers by now, so what's left to him is just like small towns. He arrives there on the 6th of July, and starts setting up under a heavy police surveillance. We have reports from this, which is where a lot of information is taken in this episode, because Tsarist secret police really like to write everything down. And sometimes the reports were in-depth, but often it seemed like the police just got really lax, and, you know, one of the reports just go like this, quote, <clears throat> During the three months and 22 days that the Caucasian, as they called Stalin, spent in Volgoda, he visited the library 17 times, did not go to the theater or cinema, also did not frequent cafes. End quote. However, our good comrade only manages to stay out of trouble for a very short while. Already, during July, he writes to the Leninist Bolshevik workers newspaper about his intentions to find a job either in Petersburg or in Moscow. Specifically, Stalin notes that, quote, My work in other regions and smaller towns where I'm legally allowed to live would prove to be less productive. End quote. And so, in the 6th of September, Stalin's really fed up with this Volgoda place, so he illegally moves to Petersburg, moving in the Russia Hotel using a fake passport of Pyotr Chizhikov. There, he meets his Bolshevik mates and establishes personal connections within the Petersburg party. But, being used to Siberian Tsarist police not paying attention to him, he gets kinda sloppy and gets arrested and jailed for the fifth time. And obviously the cops force him to reveal his true identity, and thus he is jailed until the 14th of December. When, and get this, get this thing, he's sentenced to an exile. Uh, bonus points, he's exiled to Volgoda. Yeah, uh, now they've only added that he's supposed to be constantly under police observation, which he was before, but... Uh, yeah, I'm not really sure why, but it seems that St. Petersburg court system didn't really understand with what kind of a person they were dealing here. Because all that did was anger Stalin and get him more motivated. After all, Stalin had Lenin's attention by now and was in frequent correspondence with him. Like, remember that they planned Tbilisi heist together and this was important. Especially, specifically, most important part was that Russian evolutionary underground was dealt heavy blows in 1905 events. But, because of Stalin's relentless efforts and heavy work being dedicated to Lenin's cause, it was all back up and running again. And it was better run and more organized than it had ever been. And Stalin also has moved north, which is where the capital is, and is aiming his sights at it. He had to leave the Caucasus behind. But now, now, 
he is awaiting the, the new 1912th year in Volgoda, again, being sent away from Petersburg. However, there are people out there who have really taken notice of him. You see, from the 5th to 17th of January, the 6th All-Russian Conference of the Russian Social Democratic Party happens. This time, it's in Prague. And, on the very first meeting, realizing how important he's become with his constant and amazing capabilities, yay! The conference sort of co-opts Stalin in the Central Committee of the Bolshevik Party. He's also elected to the Russian Bureau of Central Committee, which he's supposed to run. Promotion time! But yeah, uh, some explanation here. See, previously I've been speaking about Central Committee, and that's of the Bolsheviks, which are a part of the Social Democratic Party, namely parties, because no one's really united by this point. What this all-Russian conference does is that they gather uh, people from all over Russia, and uh, they make this all-Russian Central Committee to which he's elected. So that's kind of a a new level of Central Committees. It's a Central Committee inception, you can speak of. Uh, And this Russian Bureau Central Committee means that it only is considering the kind of territories around St. Petersburg, this all-Russian thing. Because, you know... Uh, we over there in the Latvian territories, Livonian territories, uh, like Lithuanian parts, Poland, Caucasus, all these are separate regions there because Russian Empire isn't as unified. When, I'm, when I say Russia, I mean the territory of modern Russian Federation and even that mostly including uh, only the European parts. Just, uh, just a side note, a footnote if you will, other people like to put those in. But <laughs> explanation of central committees, well... Eventually, they'll all just combine into one, so it's going to get a bit easier. But anyhow, Stalin will will have to wait a bit for his promotions. He finds out about this one only in the 18th of February, when under the command by Lenin, another member of the Russian CK bureau, Orjikonidze, came to tell him the good news and brought him resources and money for the escape. I do have to note here, however, that there are sources out there, among them my favorite Alex de Jong, who states that this was just an invention of Stalinist propaganda, and as a result of his rewriting of party history in 1938, and that Orjokonidze was assigned to the head of the Russian CK bureau, and that Stalin wasn't even elected there, just nominated. Which they explain with the fact that he liked to work within the party organization to do real revolutionary acts and not to court votes. And Orjokonidze was conveniently dead by 1938 anyways. Spoiler alert, guess how that happened. But I don't think that this is quite true, actually, seeing as how Stalin will operate with a full CK authority in the future, and what his immediate actions are. In the end, the end, it's not like it matters that much, really, in the grand aspect of things, just showing out here about what details of Stalin's life, really, we argue about a lot. What happens, definitely, is that in the 29th of February, at about 2 a.m., Without police permission, obviously, he grabs whatever of his valuables that he can carry and disappears from Volgoda without a trace. He's back to full legality again. First, he quickly visits the Aluliyev family, where he's so happy that he takes the kids on a sleigh ride. Yeah, I know that's something completely new, but hey, uh, even Koba can be technically nice uh, now and then. And the best part about it is, is that we even have a report of this situation. Quote, <clears throat> according to Aliyev's later on, Stalin arrived and said, who'd like a sledge ride? Well, get dressed and hurry, we're leaving right away. And we all jumped up, shouting with excitement. We had just been sitting, glued to the window, admiring the sledges as they raced by, and suddenly we were invited by none other than Koba, Soso himself. During this visit to Petersburg, he often came to see us. We now know Soso more intimately. We know he can be a simple and gay, and that although he's usually uncommunicative and reserved, he can also laugh and joke boyishly and tell amusing stories. He sees the funny side of people and imitates them to such perfection that everyone roars with laughter. Come on, all of you, get dressed, we're all going. Fedya, Nadia, Fenya, our domestic, and I grab our fur coats and run downstairs. Soso calls out to a sledge driver. What about giving us a ride? We take our places in the sledge. Every word which is uttered makes us laugh. Soso laughs with us at everything. The sledge ride goes down the Sampsionovsky prospect, past the station. Stop. I'll get off here, and you ride on back home. And, jumping off the station, Stalin walked hurriedly. And this is 
this is kind of interesting because this this is curious glimpses of Stalin and, and everything. And when Stalin feels really happy, then some good things might happen because there's another report. <clears throat> Quote, The son of a famous Bolshevik tells this revealing episode. In 1912, when he was only nine, a, a Caucasian came to his parents' apartment. After a little talk, his father went out, leaving the Caucasian, who was pleased with the boy's conversation. Four hours later, the doorbell rang. The boy jumped up, but the man stopped him. Wait, wait, he said, as hard as... Taking the boy by the shoulder and hitting him on the cheek as hard as he could. Don't cry, the Caucasian said. Don't cry, little boy. Remember, today Stalin talked to you. When the boy told his parents about their guest's strange behavior, they were outraged and baffled. Until, later on, they heard of a custom in many mountain villages of Georgia. If a prince comes to a peasant's hut, the peasant would call in his son and hit him hard on the cheek, saying, Remember that today the prince so-and-so visited our house. But yeah, by now, Stalin was quite ready to do his own punching, as if understanding that he had a destiny. This is kind of the first indication, really, that he thought of himself as, like, by now, more than a junior member of the leadership. That he, that he, in fact, was the prince coming from the filth, but this time of the Bolshevik party. Anyhow, soon after visiting, uh, visiting, visiting Aluliyevs, he turns on his working mode and, well, quickly travels to Baku. Spends March <clears throat> organizing and making sure the local Caucasus Bolsheviks follow the line of the Prague Conference. He also visits Tbilisi at the time. On the 1st of April, he leaves the region to go back to Petersburg, and on the way there, on the 7th, he stops in Moscow, where he meets Orjokinidze again. So, like I said before, whether he's operating on his own authority or Orjokinidze's, he, at the very least, is coordinating actions with him. On the 8th, after this meeting, for one, he writes a letter to one of the leaders of German social democracy, Klara Tsetkin, where he informs her that the Central Committee of the All-Russian Social Democrats has been restored and asks her to return the Russian Bolshevik money to the organization, which she has been entrusted with for safekeeping before. Stalin makes it to the St. Petersburg on the 10th of April. There, he will work as the editor of the Star newspaper. At the same time, there are organized strikes in Lensk, which inspires Stalin and, you know, gives more hope to the Bolshevik cause. Stalin writes, quote, Shots fired in Lensk have broken the ice, and the river of the people's movement has begun. Everything that is rotten and wrong about our current regime, every illness that the long-suffering Russia has endured, all of it has been gathered together in the strikes in Lensk. That is why the shots fired by Tsarists shall only inspire more strikes and more demonstrations. This editing work lasts until the 22nd of April. That is when the very first issue of the ultra-famous newspaper, Pravda, The Truth, comes out. Of course, with an article by Stalin in it. It is called <clears throat> Our Goals. An excerpt, an excerpt from there, quote, Enlighten the road of the Russian workers' movement with the light of the international social democracy, to sow truth among the workers and both the friends and the enemies of the working class, to stand guard of the interests of the workers' cause. Those are the true goals of Pravda. And at the very same day, he is arrested for the sixth time. According to the Peterburg, Poli Peterburg Police Department reports, quote, Yosef Vissarionovich Djukashvili has been arrested on the 22nd of April on the streets. When arrested, he reported that he doesn't have a declared place of living in the Petersburg city. During the search, nothing criminal was found. However, as we know that he's a member of the CK of the Socialist Party, he was locked up in a prison. End quote. Stalin will now spend two months and ten days in this prison, because they're obviously taking him way more seriously now. But, on the 2nd of July, he's sentenced to exile once again. <clears throat> it's This is getting funny by now, but this time it's to Narmiski Krai, where he's supposed to spend three years under strict police supervision. He'll arrive there in police escort by the steamboat from Tomsk, which is Tomsk Oblast today, by the way, this Krai. Now, Narim is far. It's very far. It's about 2,570 kilometers, or about 1,600 miles from St. Petersburg. Very far. It's southern Siberia, so it isn't as ridiculously cold, but it's still called Taiga, and it has tons of swamps there. 
Now, this proved a major challenge for our comrade, as, you know, it was very far away, Russia's transport network wasn't as developed, and, you know, police was way stricter here, and, you know, literally, how insane should you be to try to move from such a vast distance just being arrested and being a prominent person? Just kidding, Stalin will stay there for just about 38 days. Hey, what did you expect? Because, of course, he makes a daring run after having escaped the local patrols in the night of the 1st of September. He bribes his way on to a wagon train to Koloshev, a small town in the region, then, with the support from the Bolshevik network that he has built personally, he makes his way back to Petersburg, by train, and then by river steamboat, in about 12 days. So, back to Petersburg, during September and October, Stalin will work in campaigning for the Social Democrat candidates in the 4th Gosduma elections, especially fighting against the Mensheviks, which, they call, which he calls liquidators now. Because remember, the split is very real, and the social democrat angle of the party will get switched to Bolsheviks communists soon enough. Of course, he is also back to editing Pravda newspaper. At the end of October, Stalin arrives in Moscow to establish contact with the Bolshevik deputies elected from there. And one of them, one of them, is called Malinovsky. And you should probably keep Malinovsky in mind for later. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Greetings. This is Alice. I would like to address the question for our great leader, Christops, about Soviet-Russian joints rolling. Whatever you know, you don't know. You don't even know what you don't know. In fact, you are prohibited from knowing. And now, back to the show. But Stalin's most important trip, the one which uh, with which he basically kind of completes his phase of the climb up the hierarchy, is the one he takes in late 1912, by traveling to Krakow, in Poland. He wants to visit Lenin there. In later years, uh, Stalin will enjoy describing his journey, which obviously wasn't a simple one, due to the fact that Stalin literally had no passport or other documentation with him. On his way to Frontier, apparently, he has shared a compartment with uh, two other passengers who were nationalists and were reading aloud to each other from publications of another kind of a legal organization at the time, the League of Russian Patriots. Uh, those guys will participate heavily in the February Revolution and then will, beca- will become the backbone of the whites. And apparently Stalin had grown increasingly irritated by his fellow passengers, and, you know, he himself claims that he had begun to berate them for reading such total nonsense, suggesting that they try to read more... <clears throat> Enlightened publications. Now, they, obviously, this study is uh, 99% made up, because this, this sounds like something Stalin would have made, like, in retrospect, to make himself look, like, more macho and more awesome, because even though Stalin could do crazy things inside, like, the Tsarist regime in the motherland, crossing the border to Poland is a whole different thing. Crossing the border to Poland there is something that, you know, you have to be, like, really careful about, because the police situation there is completely different. Anyway, when Stalin reaches the frontier, he discovered that apparently he had uh, forgotten and lost the address of the contact who was supposedly, you know, who supposedly was there to take him across the border. Fortunately, he meets a Pole there, who offered to help him, and who turned out to be a cobbler. After a little verbal fencing, Stalin told him that he wanted to cross the frontier, the border to Poland, and that the obliging Pole took him part of the way and showed him how to complete the crossing. When he, when he told the story in later years again, Stalin would kind of, you know, 
dream about and observe that, hey, he would very much like to know where that man is now and what happened to him. What a pity that I forgot his name and cannot trace him. But at this point, I think we all, <laughs> we all kind of, you know, should be thankful that Stalin forgot his name and that the Paul dude was really lucky. Because, you know, just as with everyone else, Stalin knows at the time most likely this Polish guy would just get shot. And the man might have had some inappropriate recollections also, and besides, as Stalin was, like, observing later on, another great quote from Mr. Stalin, quote, Gratitude is a dog's disease. Just saying. Once over the frontier, Stalin had some trouble getting served in a Polish station restaurant, mind you. Uh, this is another one of these uh, weird-ass studies from Stalin, because he liked to serve these, uh, he liked to, like, save these up, so that's a lot of them available right now that we know. The waiter was slow in bringing him soup, waiting until his train was about to leave, and Stalin, in a kind of a tantrum, threw the, the bowl to the floor. Uh, he arrived at Lenin's lodgings, full, like, of complaining, while Lenin, who was actually laughing at the situation, told him that his mistake, that you should never speak Russian in a Polish restaurant if you want to be served. Better by far to point out the foods that you want. And, you know, in that respect, uh, I think... Not that much has changed, at least if you go to small restaurants in the Polish countryside. But Polish nationalism and their own attitudes and problems with Soviet Union and Russia are better left to another episode. We'll get, we'll, we'll get to that eventually in this series, don't worry about it. See, Stalin uh, arrives in Krakow at a time when Lenin himself was mostly preoccupied by the so-called question of nationalities. The situation of the minority races for the empire. Nationalism at that time, as you might have known if you listened to other podcasts, was like a major issue, like the Spanslav's attitude, but not only like in Russia, it was also an important issue in Austria-Hungary, and to some extent the British Empire, especially when concerning India. So, this was a valuable basis for agitation for a global proletariat revolution. The Bolshevik position required particularly careful formulation, since, well... All the other Russian political parties had expressed views on this subject, and Bolsheviks were just, you know, in competition with them. The Mensheviks had called for a creation of institutions necessary for the free development of every nationality, which was basically tantamount to kind of, a, I don't know, federalist attitude, much like, you know, states' rights, except, you know, nation, national autonomies inside the Russian Empire. Lenin's attitude, however, was based on, quote, the wish to have one's cake and eat it. On the other hand, he wanted to win national minorities over by promising as much as possible. On the other, he envisaged a highly centralized state, which also happened in the future, which would then govern in the interests of class, the proletariat, as opposed to any single ethnic group. And Lenin, Lenin chose Stalin to describe the Bolshevik position very largely because, you know, Stalin was just there, and while it helped that he was a Georgian, and thus free of um, the great Russian chauvinism, which was uh, played uh, played a lot by their competition. Because, you know, using the Caucasian to tell the story about how everything should be centralized is much better than using a Russian. Even though by this point Stalin has already written about, like, uh, the Jewish question and shown very anti-Semitic views, and later on Stalin will become a Russian nationalist himself and get into fights with Lenin, but, hey, he can speak for minorities too, I suppose. Stalin, at this point, is not sympathetic to the plight of, like, smaller nations. Lenin technically could have made a better choice than Stalin, because obviously there were other people who were non-Russians in the Bolshevik party. But, uh, Stalin, Stalin really suffered from a lot of complexes and was kind of angry. However, Stalin was both crude and deferential enough to please Lenin, who later wrote in a letter to Maxim Gorky of, quote, a splendid Georgian here who has settled down to write a major piece for the Enlightenment, which was a uh, Bolshevik underground publication, bringing together all the Austrian and other material. We will really get down to this. The Austrian material here refers to the considerable amount of thought that Austrian socialists had devoted to the issue because Austrian school of thought at this point influenced Lenin's ways of thinking a lot, really. Stalin was expected to work through an oppressive reading list of Austrian and other socialist writers in order to <clears throat> refute incorrect views and present the Leninist line. And Lenin also suggested that Stalin do a little 
field work in Vienna, where he could hmm, review the Austrian situation for himself. Which is another way of saying, hey, Stalin, if you want, we can get you to Vienna. Maybe you can, you know, rob some uh, banks. Uh, expropriate resources for the party. It's gonna be great, you guys. But, yeah, sadly, Stalin was not well-equipped at all to carry out this assignment, since uh, much of the reading was uh, in uh, German, and his um, he really couldn't speak anything besides Georgian and Russian. Lenin expected a bit too much from him, as Stalin really was not the educated city bourgeoisie elite that Lenin came from. Fortunately, he got some help from one Alexander Trotyanovsky. He, by the way, would later become a Soviet ambassador to the United States. And more importantly, from one Nikolai Bukharin. We spoke about him in the NEP episode in the Lenin series, but we shall go in much more detail about Bukharin's fate here in the Stalin ones. Bukharin, at this time, was considered to be a genius young Marxist intellectual and future Soviet leader. He will eventually have he will eventually have some have some regrets about uh, doing this work, though, about helping his um, <clears throat> uncultured colleague stumble through the essays of German socialists. Because Stalin will never forget that uh, you know someone knew better than him. And even, like, knowing German when Stalin didn't was a reason enough for um, management of liquidation of resources. Anyhow, it was also in Vienna that Stalin renewed uh, his acquaintance with Trotsky, whom he disliked already. Basically, only some couple of days before their second encounter, he had described him in print as a, quote, a noisy champion with face muscles. And interestingly enough, Trotsky himself only wrote about this meeting in just the last year of his life. One day, he was visiting the Menshevik Skolobeyev, his former assistant, when Stalin dropped in. Quote, Without knocking, there entered a man of medium height, haggard, with a swarthy grayish face showing signs of smallpox. A stranger, as if surprised at Trotsky's presence, stopped a moment at the door and gave a guttural growl, which might have been taken for a greeting. Then, with an empty glass in hand, he went to the samovar, uh, that is uh, one made in Tula, you know, the kind of the mechanical machine of making tea. I highly recommend you check it out if you ever get it. <clears throat> Filled his glass with tea and went out without saying a word. And yeah, at this point, Trotsky retains a kind of hardcore, strong memory of his future adversary and the impression that Stalin made of him at the time. He noticed that the Caucasian's <clears throat> dim, but not commonplace, appearance was a <clears throat> morose... He had also had a morose concentration in the face, an expression of set hostility in Caucasian's yellow eyes. A lot of uh, historical disputes have been there, have been put there, and have been devoted to the analysis of this Stalin's essay of the national minorities, in an attempt to basically determine how much of it actually was written by Stalin himself. Stalin could have been helped this by, by Lenin, Trojanovsky, and Bukharin, but since the essay is an unremarkable rendering of the correct interpretation of the question, it's really hard to get excited by the question unless, you know... I read the essay, and I read all of arguments from other sides, but then I read the essay again, and, uh... Sorry, guys. It's not gonna get included here. But in general, the piece kind of attempts to define kind of Ask the question of what is a nation. Incidentally, by the way, denying the principle of extraterritoriality. For example, the Jews are not a nation because they don't have a state. And quote, mm -mm, the sooner the Jewish population of the Russian Empire assimilates itself, the better for all concerned. Stalin proclaims the right of nations to self-determination on the one hand, condemning de decentralization and federalism on the other. However, to aspire to national independence in the socialist state would constitute the betrayal of what you should be wanting. Yeah, the, the sense is not the strong side of uh, early Bolshevik arguments anyway. But yeah, this is Stalin's first really major publication. And this, <laughs> apparently, for some reason, gained him the reputation of being the <clears throat> Central Committee's Nationalities Specialist. And... Uh, the importance with which this essay, this first major publication, has been, like, really attributed to has, like, literally nothing to do with, like, merits of this 
clumsy work, which is actually really boring. And, you know, it took time for, for this essay to actually get somewhere and get some reputations there. It's like, it's not even mentioned in a retrospective study published in 1923 by the Bolshevik Party themselves, of the publication in which it appeared, and, you know, it was reprinted shortly after the end of World War II, which will go into terrible long detail, but then it sold millions of copies. Uh, by the way, in 1948, during the Allied occupation of Vienna, a marble plaque was set on the house in the Schönbrunner Schlossstrasse, where Stalin had stayed, announcing that mm, Josef Vissarionovich Stalin resided in this house during the January 1913. He wrote his important work, Marxism and the National Question, here. Uh, I, again, dispute the very importance of this question, however. <laughs> but yeah. And I don't know if the plague endures until this day, and, you know, if you're in Vienna, someone should take a picture of it, but, you know, apparently it has been, like, repainted over, and then it had been depainted, and, uh, and so multiple times. So, yeah, if any of you guys are in Vienna, please, please, write us a message and let us know. But yeah, so we have moved to 1913. See, 1913 will become an even crazier year than 1912 for Stalin, so I leave it next time together together with the beginning of World War I and <clears throat> crazy escapades of Stalin getting away from, like, even more <laughs> exiles until that point. But for now, well, for now we have the Ask Uncle Joe segment for you. And today's question for Uncle Joe is a, um, a bit weird one. <clears throat> hey, Uncle Joe, do you have any hobbies? And Uncle Joe has to respond that indeed. Indeed, Stalin had hobbies. And one of them was that he was a major movie geek. No, seriously, Stalin loved movies. Uh, for starters, he really enjoyed <laughs> enjoyed just uh, movie marathons. And he would invite, uh, like, all of his, like, subordinates and everyone over for, mo over for movie marathons at the Great Kremlin Palace. And the films that were viewed there, they were selected by Ivan Bolshakov, Stalin's Minister of Cinema. And Bolshakov had to, like, really choose carefully. If Stalin was feeling jolly, Bolshakov would take a chance and play a new Soviet film. If he was feeling down or, like, irritated or, you know, uh, attempting to murder people again, Bolshakov fell back on, like, classics or foreign films because that was a special privilege, and Stalin always was happy there. And, um, unsurprisingly, Stalin had a taste for gangster flicks. Hey, um, I wonder why Stalin would love gangster flicks. <clears throat> One of his favorite American films was <clears throat> Each Dawn I Die, starring James Cagney and George Ruft. However, he had a soft tide, and, like, his favorite Soviet picture of all times was a musical comedy called Volga Volga. And, increase, and interestingly, he also was a censor, and he was a bit of a prudish in the matter, and he personally ordered a scene of French kissing to be cut from the film. In fact, he was so angry that he outlawed all, all on-screen kissing for a while, too, completely. Stalin was also a huge fan of Frank Kappa's It Happened One Night. He was a fan of Charlie Chaplin pictures, because obviously all great dictators must be fans of Chaplin. He also loved Tarzan movies and westerns starring Spencer Tracy and Clark Gable. And it's kind of weird, because, you know, uh, by western sources about this Stalin's movie love state that they don't understand. Hey, why would Stalin love westerns? But guys, guys, it's, it's Stalin. Obviously, you know, his Caucasian spirits really work with this situation. I mean, it's just somewhat obvious that he'd do that. But, besides all these points, uh, Stalin was more than just a mere moviegoer. He considered himself to be Russia's first and best film critic, and a big-time producer at the same time. He wrote song lyrics from his old days back in poetry, he dreamed up movie titles, and even wrote tips to actors, screenwriters, and directors. Uh, yeah, obviously everyone always took his advice on what movies to make. But most importantly, Stalin himself was the Soviet Union's censor, the ultimate one. He watched every single Soviet film and was completely ruthless in this judging things. If a movie wouldn't meet his personal approval, it ended up in the trash bin. 
the directors, who felt up to lift his standards, were lectured, like called the Kremlin and lectured on how to properly make movies, and ministers of cinema, who failed to pass muster, and like who just gave him bad movies to watch, yeah, they were shot. In fact, Stalin was such a tough critic that in the years after World War II, all the studios of the Soviet Union were just releasing a grand total of like 10 films per year because everything else just just chopped down. And Stalin was really strict and just crazy about his movies, but the man understood the importance of films in general. His, uh, His predecessor and our good pal Lenin had said before, quote, the cinema for us is the most important of arts. End quote. And that Stalin really took personally and extremely, extremely seriously. He realized that, you know, movies are a prime tool of propaganda, they kind of can change the way how people think, and obviously he wanted to put on a facade for every one of us living in the USSR so that he would think of him as like <clears throat> an all-knowing benevolent leader. So, this is why Stalin personally personally interviewed every actor who portrayed him on screen. That is why he approved films like The Wow, which depicted him receiving a blessing from Lenin's ghost as a sunbeam on his forehead. That is why, by the way, he hated movies like Sergei Eisenstein's Ivan the Terrible Part 2, which actually portrayed the titular Tsar as a crazy paranoid murderer, which he was. As obviously, Stalin really didn't want his citizens associating rulers with ruthless killers. Of course, well, no one here really was fooled by Stalin's propaganda films. Except, we have to say, Stalin himself and his latter era. Or so, by the way, Khrushchev guys claim. Which I doubt, but the story goes that as Stalin descended into madness, that he began to take cues from the movies he loved. Because apparently after watching a drama about life of Admiral Ushakov, he decided to revamp the navy. And like, for example, when he would be finishing a film featuring happy wealthy peasants, Stalin decided it was time for a new tax. This is bullshit. I'm very sorry, but this is the thing, which again, western sources say, but this is Khrushchev's propaganda of later dates to make Stalin into this even more crazier-than-he-was guy to show that Stalin was completely not in control. No, Stalin loved movies, Stalin was censoring things. But he never decided to tax someone more because he watched a movie. And again, this is this uh, again plays into this nice myth of Stalin as, you know, becoming more and more crazier as time goes by and just becoming more and more insane. But you should take these things with a grain of salt and even when it comes to Stalin... Really, he was not as mad as people liked to portray him. He was, like, insane and crazy and bravado and in control and maybe paranoid at some points, properly paranoid. But uh, when you read about this situation here in Western media, you can, like, find some fairy tales about the fact that the man arrested his projectionist after the, the dude broke a film projector and spilled mercury everywhere. And apparently he was arrested under charges to poison Stalin. Yeah, the problem is this story is just a legend, nothing more. It's just not uncorroborated by other sources. Sure, Stalin killed millions of people and was a terrible monster, but come on. It's not like he was stupid. That was one thing he wasn't, really. Yeah, Stalin really enjoyed Western movies and all that stuff, which is basically from his early life, but mostly he really appreciated comedies. Now, we'll get more into the stories of, of weird Stalin's hobbies and stuff, but yeah. Again, it's kind of shame because uh, because everything is, is weird. But yeah, all sorts of weird stuff has come out from Khrushchev in later eras, which I also would like to mention here. For example, for example, Stalin inherited Goebbels' movie library after the war, and because of this, he loved he loved the Chaplin movies and everything. And but at some point, apparently, according to Khrushchev, <coughs> Khrushchev wanted to murder John Wayne. In spite of his fan, his, his being fan of Western movies, uh, sources claim that Stalin once declared at the end of the showing that Wayne, a vociferous anti-communist, was a threat to the cause and should be assassinated. And obviously, uh, <clears throat> the sources say that whether Stalin was speaking drunkenly in the early hours or whether he meant what he said, like really, the order was quite likely to be executed, and assassins were supposedly sent to L.A. but fate to kill John Wayne before Stalin's death. 
And uh, when Khrushchev met John Wayne in 1958, he told him that was the decision of Stalin in his last mad years. I rescinded the order. But the problem is that, again, you can get a bunch of crazy stories from Khrushchev about how Stalin was mean and mad and how he got insane. One sure, one thing do we know for sure. Stalin loved movies, he criticized movies, he really spoke with all the actors, and took, he took movies seriously. But whenever you see someone speaking like, uh, using Khrushchev's, Khrushchev's stories to accurately document Stalin's life and his hobbies, yeah, take notice. That's probably fake, and then Khrushchev just trying to save his ass. Um, we'll get to Khrushchev's stories about Stalin later on on the show, but trust me. I will separate the nonsense from what actually happened. And that was it for our today's episode. Sorry, that's a bit shorter one. But it, it was re- very research heavy. And we split off some parts for the next one where we're going to be talking about 1913 and the beginning of World War One. But yeah, it's coming next week. And I hope you enjoy this show. And don't forget to leave us reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. And, you know, go into our webpage, theeasternborder.lv, and post a comment there. Maybe become a patron in patreon.com slash border. Also remember that, uh, yeah, patrons, please, please do send us uh, your addresses because we received only a few. And yeah, we'll be sending out uh, the packages in the end later this week because we've waited because, you know, only six six packages to be sent. That, that That's kind of wrong. So please, please, if you're a Patreon supporter, send us in your, uh, send us in your addresses. Uh, and also, yes, we understand that we didn't publish the book last month with a bu- the book recording, so you're getting a double length this month. And I hope you'll feel happier about that, because uh, Polyutkovskaya's book is really great, and we're trying to finish it so that we can get on to more lighter stuff. Okay, that's about it for today. До свидания, товарищи! Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.